um, if you're with us for the first time, you'll like to keep that passage open in front of you, and also the white bulletin, uh, because on the inside of the white bulletin there is an outline that uh, tells you where we're going in the next few minutes. Well, let's, um, let's ask for God's help as we come to his holy word. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, you have taught us that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We pray that you would come to us this morning as a father with little children, that you would break down for us the bread of life. We pray that you would not only open our mouths that we may, we may feed, but also our hearts, that we may inwardly digest the food of the gospel. And we pray that as we look again into your word, that we may find our Lord Jesus Christ as the bread of life, who has come down from heaven, that in him we might enjoy eternal and everlasting life. Speak to us then, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, in this series, we've been discovering what the Bible means uh, when it describes Jesus as the Son of God. And one of the reasons that John's Gospel is such a good place to focus our investigation is because John is the only one of the Gospel writers who records for us seven particular statements of Jesus, each beginning with the words, I am. Now, of course, the, the phrase, I am, was the name that God wanted to be known by in the Old Testament. Uh, it does sound rather odd to our ears, doesn't it? We don't speak like that. But what God wanted his people to understand by it is that he is unchanging and complete. Now think about it. That is not like us, is it? If we know ourselves at all, we know that we are not quite the same as we were this time last year. And by God's grace, by this time next year, we'll be different again. But God does not change. And when Jesus uses God's name for himself and announces, I am, he's saying that the Jesus that you and I meet in the Gospels is exactly the same today as he was then. And he'll be the same tomorrow and the day after and the day after that and forever. But Jesus doesn't stop there. In John's Gospel he says, I am, seven different ways and each one tells us something slightly different about what it means for Jesus to be I am the unchanging complete perfect God of the Bible and the first of these I am's appears in verse 35 in our passage where Jesus says I am the bread of life <clears throat> Now, the challenge for us this morning is to try and understand what on earth he means by that. And uh, to help us, I'm going to concentrate on only 
three verses. We'll look at a few others as well, but I'm going to focus on three main verses and I've given each one a title, as you can see in the outline. So, the first will be verse 27, food that spoils. Then verse 35, food that satisfies. And then lastly, verse 40, where to find it, where to find the food that satisfies. So firstly then, food that spoils in verse 27. Now it's important of course to know that the immediate context is that after the miracle of the feeding that we looked at last week, the crowd have gone to some considerable trouble to find Jesus. And uh, as Christian people we might think that's an enormously encouraging sign. But uh, when they eventually catch up with him, Jesus sees immediately what they really want. So come with me to verse 26, because in verse 26, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. And then immediately Jesus gives them a warning in verse 27. The warning is, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. I suppose in today's language what Jesus is saying is, you've got to change your diet. Now obviously, uh, Jesus here is not talking about physical food, and that's an important clue. Because the Bible tells us that all human beings are spiritually hungry. It tells us that we've been made that way. So 900 years before the Lord Jesus was born, the book of Ecclesiastes says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Now what that means is that if for some reason... I turn away from God and I stop reading my Bible, I will automatically turn to some other spiritual activity because I must find a way to satisfy my spiritual hunger. I can't actually help it. And the reason that Jesus gives this warning about the spiritual diet of the crowd is that they are coming to him for the wrong reason. You see, what they want is more bread and fish. Now that's what Jesus gave the multitude by the lake last week. And John tells us, doesn't he, that they all had enough to eat. But now, 24 hours later, they want more. At one level, there's nothing wrong with that. that we all have to eat. And the Bible tells us that God has given us all things richly to enjoy, and that includes our food. But you see, if Jesus gives me bread and fish today and nothing else, then the only thing that is certain is that I will need more bread and fish tomorrow, and the next day, and the day after that. So you see, what Jesus is actually warning them against in verse 27 is our natural desire to try and make Jesus the servant of our physical and material appetites. And this passage tells us why that is so terribly dangerous. In verse 27, 
When Jesus says, do not work for food that spoils, uh, the word translated spoils is an interesting word that could equally well be translated destroys. In other words, if I see Jesus merely as the person who gratifies my appetites for comfort and ease and security in this present age and nothing else, in the end, that will destroy my appetite for God. Now, friends, I want to say to you this morning that this is a very subtle trap for Christians, but we can't emphasise the danger too strongly. Uh, One of John Piper's excellent books has the title, A Hunger for God. Uh, It's actually a book about fasting and the, the place of fasting in the Christian life today, so it's an excellent book to read during Lent. And there's a place in the book where John Piper explains how very easily we can lose our appetite for God. And I've included what he says on the reverse of the green question sheet. You might want to follow it with me. John Piper says this, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality that we drink in every night. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of the earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognisable and almost incurable. Now, there's lots to think about there, isn't there? But do you see how subtle it is? What he's saying is that the real threat to our spiritual health is not the obvious evils that we're all so familiar with and which, if we've been Christians for more than five minutes, we can recognise and probably avoid fairly easily. Not those. No, the real threat is our attachment to things that seem so innocent. Things that we actually know that God in his goodness has provided, but which, if we're not careful, can so easily take first place in our lives. And that's why Jesus urges us to start a new diet and to work for a different food, a food that endures to eternal life. But here's the thing, it won't come naturally. Jesus says that like any new diet, you and I have to take some initiative. And that will mean making some changes in our lives which might be uncomfortable and which will require real effort on our part. Now, of course, For that, we need some encouragement. We need a positive motivation. I mean, we've just been talking about what can happen if we don't change our diet, 
That's the negative, that's the warning. But is there a positive incentive? Well, praise God, there is. Because our second verse assures us that there is a food that satisfies. Now look at our key verse again with me, please, verse 35, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, I want you to pay the the closest possible attention to what I'm about to say. Because um, the original language of the New Testament uses two different words for our English word, life. Now, one of those words refers to a person's physical existence. Uh, It's telling us they're not dead. Uh, So, if we take them to the intensive care unit at uh, the Constantinburg Hospital and we plug them into some of their very expensive machines, they'll tell us that that person still has a pulse and their brain is still working. Now, If that were the word that Jesus was using here, then when he says, I am the bread of life, his meaning would be this. I can make your physical existence go on forever and ever. If Jesus was saying that, I for one would run a mile, and so would you. I mean, who on earth wants to live forever in a frail body that can get sick and feel pain and needs constant maintenance and is infected with sin and all of its horrible consequences. I don't want that and I hope you don't either. Fortunately, it's not the word Jesus is using here. No, the word that Jesus is using throughout this passage refers to our quality of life. It's actually rather confusing for us because we only have one word, life, in English. But the Greek has got these two different words with two very, very different meanings. So what Jesus is actually saying in verse 35 is, I am what makes life really worth living. I can give you the highest quality of life imaginable. Now, there are two things that we need to grasp about this. The first is that Jesus' words here are the fulfilment of a promise that God made to his people 800 years before. So, keep one finger in John 6 and turn to the passage we said as a corporate prayer earlier, Isaiah 55, page 518. Isaiah 55 page 518. Now, while you're turning there, let me tell you that the situation, the context in Isaiah 55, is that after years of rebelling against God and refusing to listen to his warnings, Israel is in captivity in Babylon. But now, in Isaiah 55, we see God reaching out to his captive people, And this is what he says, verse 1. Come, all you you who are thirsty, come to the waters, 
And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. So can you see that, like many, many, many people today, the people of Israel have been running after spiritual food that spoils. It hasn't satisfied them, In fact, it's left them spiritually hungry, spiritually thirsty. And even worse than that, they're suffering God's righteous judgment. But, says God, listen to me. Feed on my words. And not only will I give you a permanent relationship with me, but you will discover that my words are the most satisfying food on the market. So secondly, with all of that in the back of our minds, let's think about how this helps us to understand what Jesus means when he says, I am the bread of life, I am what makes life worth living. Well, what are the things that our culture says make life worth living. Well, I guess for some people, uh, it might be money. Uh, They say, don't they, if only I had enough money, then I would have peace of mind and life really would be worth living. For other people, um, it might be sexual freedom. It's a big one today, isn't it? They say, you know, I really don't want to be restricted by marriage to one sexual partner for life. Having sexual freedom, for me, makes life worth living. Well, here's a subtle one. For some of us here this morning, it might be recognition. Recognition at work, recognition at college, or the recognition that comes from a successful ministry. And we might be saying to ourselves, you know, I can put up with all of the hassle with all of the stresses and strains of ministry or whatever job I'm doing, as long as people recognise that my ministry is successful, because being recognised as a success in ministry makes life worth living. Now, the problem is that in each case, these things actually deliver the opposite of what they promise. Because money doesn't give you peace of mind, As soon as you have some, you start worrying you're going to lose it. What about sexual freedom? Well, instead of giving freedom and meaning to life, it leads to a loveless, lonely life. A life that's spiritually empty. And the evidence is that that nearly always develops into the bondage of sex addiction. And the desire for recognition in ministry or any other activity 
can so easily become an obsession that makes us suspicious of other people and jealous of their success. Doesn't sound very satisfying to me. So the truth is that instead of making life worth living, each one of those dreams is a dead end because they distort reality. That's the problem. They cause us to lose sight of who we are and what life is really all about. But you see, the gospel of the Lord Jesus does exactly the opposite of that. The gospel does not distort reality. It actually sharpens it. It sharpens it. Because it shows me the truth about myself and it tells me that if I come to Jesus, that he will deal with all of my pain and my sin and my guilty conscience and whatever else it is that is keeping me trapped in unreality. And having taken all of those horrible things away, the Gospel tells me that Jesus makes me part of a new family. He puts a new power in me to make choices I couldn't make before and he gives me a wonderful hope for the future. Now you see, that's grace, isn't it? That's grace. Augustine has uh, the most lovely definition of grace. I wonder if some of you have come across it. He defines it like this. He says, grace is God giving us joy in God which triumphs over every joy in sin. Let me say that again. Grace is God giving us joy in God which triumphs over every joy and sin. Isn't that lovely? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that the way that God breaks down our allegiance to the things that we thought would make life worth living is by giving us a deeper and much more satisfying joy in himself. Now, my dear friends, that is what the Lord Jesus means when he says, I am the bread of life, I am what makes your life worth living. And that brings us to the last thing that I want us to think about this morning, which is where to find it. Where to find this marvellous bread. You see, with such a wonderful, wonderful offer, I think the natural question we all want to ask is, why doesn't everybody want it? I mean, we can all think of lots of people who, who either don't want Jesus at all or who only want him as a side dish. You see, they aren't actually looking to him to make their lives worth living, except perhaps for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. But why is that? Why is that? Well, the answer that the Lord Jesus gives in our passage is that when a person's eyes are open so that they do want Jesus and all that he has to offer, that is actually God's sovereign choice. Come with me, if you will, to verse 37. And as you come there with me, I want you to notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, all who choose me will come to me. He doesn't say that. Many people would be a great deal happier if he did say that, but he doesn't. 
No, what he actually says is, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now you see, that little phrase is telling us, isn't it, that the people who are going to be in heaven on the last day are the people God has chosen. By the way, I find that an enormous encouragement here on Sunday mornings because it reminds me that I can't convert anybody. Uh, I've got to present the gospel as clearly as I possibly can, but if anybody is going to be truly converted to Christ, God's got to do it. If a person doesn't want the bread of life, well, once I've shared the gospel with them, there's nothing more I can do except to pray. Very liberating, isn't it, if you're in ministry? But if God does act, won't you look at the marvellous, marvellous assurance that Jesus gives in verse 39? He says this, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. So, if you're a Christian here this morning, that is only because God chose you long before you chose him. But the question, of course, is what about tomorrow? What about next week? What about next year? And all the years that remain until Jesus returns. Can you lose... Can you lose your salvation? Well, no, you can't. Because we have one of the best guarantees in the world. What is that guarantee? Well, I feel I must point this out. Will you notice that it's not the church? The church is absolutely vital to our spiritual health. Absolutely vital. But being a member of the local church is not what guarantees our security on the last day. No. Jesus says, I shall lose none of all that the Father has given me. Not one. Not even Simon Clegg. But that, of course, then leads us to verse 40. And what I think is one of the greatest mysteries in the whole Gospel. Because while it's true that our salvation is God's sovereign work from beginning to end, verse 40 tells us that that does not override our responsibility. Now please don't ask me to explain this to you because I think it's beyond our finite human minds to grasp. But suffice it to say that verse 40 tells me that if I want the bread of life, I cannot sit still and do absolutely nothing. In one of the most precious promises in the entire Bible, Jesus says, verse 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So, my dear friend, if you are not a Christian here this morning, Jesus is asking two things of you. The first is that you look to him. The word literally means, will you contemplate him? Will you study his words and actions honestly and fairly and with integrity? Will you think about them? You see, the Bible doesn't ever expect you to make a leap in the dark. 
as a friend of ours in London is fond of saying, the only thing you get with a leap in the dark is a broken ankle. God does not ask anybody to take a leap in the dark. Instead, what you've got to do is read the first six chapters of John's Gospel, which we've been studying together so far this year. And you've got to ask Jesus to open your mind to understand its message. And then once you've done that, the second thing that Jesus asks is that if God opens your mind so that you find yourself actually wanting what the Lord Jesus has to offer, then will you believe in him? What does that mean? It means will you trust him? Will you surrender your life to him? Because he's worthy of it. And you see, if you do that, then God's promise is that you will begin to discover in your own personal experience what Jesus means when he says, I am the bread of life. I am what makes your life worth living. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we we thank you that Jesus is the bread of life for men and women today. Thank you that in our very troubled world and our own troubled lives, Jesus makes life worth living. But Lord, we do confess that we have gone after food that spoils by making your good gifts the focus of all our affections and energy. Father, forgive us. We want to change our diet this morning. Please help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to think about him, to consider the significance of his words and his actions preserved in the Gospel. And as we do that, may we see, perhaps for the first time, that he is worthy of all our trust, not only for this life, but for the life of the world to come. And we ask it in his most precious name. Amen.